Hello and welcome to City Breaks Paris, episode 10, Occupied Paris, known to everyone in France as Les Années Noires, the Dark Years, 1940 to 1944, when the Germans were occupying the city of Paris and when life in the city was so completely different. Going to have a little look at the history, what life was actually like for Parisians in those days, and then focus particularly on two museums which you can visit today to learn much more about this era. And they would be the Musée de la Libération, newly opened for the 75th anniversary of the occupation of Paris, the Liberation Museum in English, and the Shoah, Paris's Holocaust Museum. So, to cut to the chase, 8th of June 1940, Paris was a city under siege. The Germans were very close. The government was about to up sticks and take off to Bordeaux. Newspapers were beginning to shut down. People were fleeing the city if they could. Anyone wealthy, anyone with connections elsewhere in France, anybody who thought they could possibly manage it, left. And a few days later, on the 14th of June, German soldiers arrived, marched along the Champs-Élysées and paraded in the Place de la Concorde, making a point then of taking over some of Paris's most iconic streets and absolutely stamping their authority from the very beginning. At the Hôtel de Ville, the tricolore was lowered, the swastika went up, German flags, in fact, were flown on every public building, every monument, including the Eiffel Tower. A few days later, Hitler came to visit on the 23rd of June, his only visit to Paris, in fact, and quite the tourist trip. He went to the Opéra, which he described as being, quote, the most beautiful theatre in the world. He went to the Madeleine, to the Place du Trocadero, where he had his photograph taken, him with the Eiffel Tower in the background, a photo you may have seen. He was taken by car on a tour of all the other things he wanted to see. Napoleon's tomb at the Invalides, the Luxembourg Gardens, the Panthéon, and then a drive up one of his very favourite roads, the Rue de Rivoli, on the right bank of the Seine, just past Notre Dame. And that evening, he passed comment on his trip, saying, quote, Wasn't Paris beautiful? But Berlin must be considered far more beautiful. In the past, I often considered whether we would not have to destroy Paris. But when we are finished in Berlin, Paris will only be a shadow, so why should we destroy it? Out of his hearing, one of the Allied generals apparently remarked, What a mentality! So the Germans were here, and they were staying. They set themselves up, or the generals did at least, in some of Paris's very poshest hotels, along the Rue de Rivoli, in the Place Vendôme, the Ritz, for example, and they went shopping. Many Germans loved Paris. It's said, in fact, that German soldiers were vying to be sent to France, once the occupation got underway. It was where they wanted to be. And they went to the Paris shops, bought things like silk stockings for their wives and perfume to send home. And being under orders to be on their absolutely best behaviour, they apparently paid for everything, scrupulously, in occupation currency. Come back in a minute to what life was actually like for Parisians during this period. But just to finish the history, let's fast forward to 1944, when Allied troops, Americans, British, Canadians, landed in Normandy in June, and who, by August, were reaching Paris, ready to liberate the city. Another very difficult few days, barricades all over the city, Parisians themselves being called upon to fight, very heavy casualties, there were still German tanks in the city, don't forget. But finally, finally, on the 24th of August, three tanks from the army, headed by the French General Leclerc, arrived in Paris, and fought their way right through to the Place de l'Hôtel de Ville, at which point the church bells started to ring, 
There was still more fighting to be done, but people could see that it was nearly over. And it was at this point that Parisians began to take their revenge on those whom they deemed to have collaborated. Women's heads were shaved, men were forced to parade down the street wearing only their underwear. Ugly scenes were the beginning of disputes between those who'd resisted and those who'd collaborated. Not that it was always easy to tell exactly which was which. People, for example, turned in droves to the resistance in the last few weeks, seeing the writing on the wall. But there was to be a schism in French society between the two sides for decades to come. On the afternoon of the 24th of August, the German general in charge, one General von Kollitz, was in his office at the Hotel Meurice on the Rue de Rivoli. He knew what was going to happen, but he had lunch anyway, played some billiards, and when the Allies arrived, he signed the capitulation. The next day is the one that people remember because they've seen film footage of it, 25th of August, General de Gaulle back in town, offering himself as a leader of the new Free France. On the 26th of August, General de Gaulle went to the Arc de Triomphe, the Place de l'Étoile, to visit the Tomb of the Unknown Warrior, where he placed a wreath, and then led a jubilant march down the Champs-Élysées, great crowds following him, all the way to Notre-Dame Cathedral, where a service was held. You must have seen photographs or film footage of the celebrations in Paris on that day, and here, describing them, is one Jacques-Henri Lartigue, who wrote a book called Diary of a Century. Liberation. Paris is ours again. Everyone moves out onto the streets to celebrate freedom. Flags wave everywhere. A holiday parade without a route. People move in every direction, pass each other, cross again, mix together, embrace, move to new groups. Some people are gay, others not at all. So reminding us then that for some people this was a time of fear, even though for most it was a time of great joy. We know that Hitler, having seen this coming, commanded his general, General von Kollitz, to raise Paris to the ground and make it, quote, nothing but a blackened field of ruin. But, fortunately, said general decided to refuse this order. We know that he'd already done some terrible things in other cities, in Eastern Europe, during the war, but he himself said that he didn't want to go down in history as the man who had destroyed Paris. So, what was life actually like for ordinary Parisians during the occupation? Pretty much as soon as the Germans arrived, a curfew was established. They weren't allowed out past 11 o'clock at night. There were food shortages, rationing, counted as far as people could by the black market. German signs appeared everywhere. Das Gras nicht betreten, for example. Keep off the grass. Clocks had to be set to German time. There was censorship. German propaganda films in the cinemas, for example. Private cars were banned. Only the Germans were allowed to drive about. The metro was used during the week. People had to get to work. But it was closed at weekends. Germans could get around the city in their cars. The Parisians had to walk or stay at home. They had to remember to be very respectful to Germans when they met them. You had to step aside for a German if you met him in the street. And if you didn't do that, you might be kicked into the gutter as a punishment. I think it's probably the rationing and the food shortages that Parisians who lived at the time remember most. Here's Colin Jones, author of A Traveller's History of Paris, describing what things were like. Quote, Bread, sugar and noodles were rationed in August, followed in October by butter, cheese, meat, coffee, pork and eggs. Soon it was chocolate, dried vegetables, fresh fish, potatoes, offal, milk and even wine. In due course, 
coffee was replaced by a brew made of acorns and chickpeas called Café Nacional. The ration card became the Parisians' most important document. Housewives would pay a concierge for permission to spend the night on a porch or in an empty cellar in order to be first in line when a nearby food shop opened. Fuel for heating was also in very short supply and the winters were harsh. The old and the ill suffered particularly. The metro became a place where people would go to hide or to sleep just because it was warm. In a book called Tête à Tête, about the lives of Jean-Paul Sartre and Simon de Beauvoir in Paris, before and during and after the war, the author Hazel Rowley describes how they used to spend their working days in cafes simply because that was the place where heating was provided, whereas the rooms they were renting, it really was very cold indeed. So she wrote, quote, The four winters of the occupation would prove unusually severe, with snow and ice on the streets of Paris. Coal was rationed, and power cuts were common. In the middle of the floor, that's the floor cafe, in the middle of the floor sat a large pot-bellied stove, which the owner kept well stoked with his supply of black market coal. So they would be there, from morning right through to evening, writing. So life was all in all just very difficult indeed, and, as many people as possibly could, left. It's reckoned that at the height of the departures, there were 300,000 people a day leaving. And then, added to all of that, those who stayed had to contend with bombing by German aircraft. In her novel, Sweet Française, the writer Irene Nemirovsky describes the night of Monday the 3rd of June, 1940, which was the first night on which German bombs fell. She writes about the warm night, hearing the hum of the siren, people all over the city waking up and having to decide what to do. She describes mothers lifting their children out of bed by torchlight, dressing them quickly and taking them down to the air raid shelters, or to the metro stations where you would be safer. Here's part of her description of Paris on that evening. Quote, An air raid. All the lights were out, but beneath the clear golden June sky, every house, every street was visible. As for the Seine, the river seemed to absorb even the faintest glimmers of light and reflect them back a hundred times brighter, like some multifaceted mirror. Badly blacked-out windows, glistening rooftops, the metal hinges of doors all shone in the water. There were a few red lights that stayed on longer than the others. No one knew why, and the Seine drew them in, capturing them and bouncing them playfully on its waves. From above it could be seen flowing along, as white as a river of milk. It guided the enemy planes, some people thought. Others said that couldn't be so. In truth, no one really knew anything. I'm staying in bed, sleepy voices murmured. I'm not scared. All the same, it just takes one, the more sensible replied. Many authors report little acts of defiance, things that people could do to make themselves feel better, and yet which the Germans couldn't really object to. For example, a lot of people took to folding back the corners of their metro tickets so that the end of the ticket made a V sign, V of course, or victory, and then they would toss them on the ground, leaving a little message, a little sign of hope for everyone to see. A French author called Jean Guéhenno wrote a book translated into English as Diary of the Dark Years, and he described how people would go out of their way to wear something with red and blue and white in it as a sort of symbol of the French flag and a sign that they wanted to show a little defiance. This was forbidden, of course, so he had to be careful. Here's the author describing a couple of people he saw. Quote, Louisette, in her red and white checkered dress and her blue scarf, came down from Belleville like a republic. 
Men had fewer means of doing it. They let one of those matchboxes, decorated with a blue and white and red emblem, stick out of their jacket pockets. Never had people looked at each other more carefully. Each one worked at recognising the other's intentions. The blue shoes, white stockings and red dress of one woman. The red jacket, blue purse and white gloves of another. What pathetic efforts, but not wasted at all. That mutual attention ended up by creating the joy of a communion. We can say with the safety of 75 years separating us from this that they really were interesting times. And if you know what to look for, you will in fact see little signs all over Paris. For example, you walk up the Rue de Rivoli, on your right-hand side, if you're walking with your back to the cathedral, you will find the Hôtel Meurice, where General von Kohlitz was arrested. Turn right, little after that, into the Place Vendôme, look at the Ritz, and remember that that's also where some of the occupying German generals made their really rather luxurious homes while they were in Paris. There are plaques all over the city. You can see two resistance fighters. They'll have the date, the name of the people who fell, exactly in the place where they were killed. There's a plaque on the Ile de la Cité, which commemorates the message from General Leclerc to the people of Paris, dropped by air on the 24th of August, which read, Tenez bon, nous arrivons. Hold on, we're coming. And if you really want to know a lot more about this period, then I would recommend that you go to the Musée de la Libération, down in the south of the city, near the Denfer Rocherou tube station, where there are 10 or 12 rooms exhibiting all the things you might want to know. It's based particularly around the lives of two men, Jean Moulin, who went on to lead the French resistance, and Philippe Leclerc, one of the generals who liberated Paris. And there's quite a lot of biographical material about them and what they did, but also more general rooms. Room 5, for example, is headed Occupied Paris. And there you can see all sorts of material about the Vichy propaganda, for example, newspapers, posters, information about the rationing system. The room next door, Room 6, will tell you all about the resistance. You can see some of the materials people used to produce false papers if they were trying to spirit someone out of Paris. A resistance fighter, perhaps, or somebody with Jewish heritage. Maybe an Allied pilot who'd been shot down but not killed. Later on, there's a room dedicated to the liberation of Paris, where you can see documents and films about the fighting in the city on the last few days, then up to the atrium, which is titled Liberated Paris, and where you can see a whole montage of the parade which General de Gaulle led on the 26th of August. In the museum in general, you'll see all kinds of amazing objects. For example something called a bicycle generator which somebody would sit on and pedal away generating electricity in times when that was the only way to produce some. You can see items belonging to both Jean Moulin and General Leclerc but also items belonging to ordinary people too which bring it home that this really was something that affected everybody. Here's a quotation from the museum's website which explains two of the items that you can see. Quote, the resistance member Madeleine Riffaut has donated the small notebook in which she wrote down her thoughts while in a prison cell in Fresnes in 1944. Then there is the spectacular tricolore dress emblazoned with the Eiffel Tower and the Arc de Triomphe made by Marguerite Sabot, a Parisian mother, as the Liberation neared. It is the dress she wore on the Champs-Élysées on August 26, 1944, as she watched a triumphant Charles de Gaulle make his return to the French capital. 
So there you go. I hope that whets your appetite. It's so important that when we think about the occupation of Paris, we remember the fate of the Jews. Pretty much as soon as the Germans arrived, they tried to impose their ideas. And there were many in the French government who collaborated with them. The yellow star was introduced. French Jews had to wear that. Before long then, that led to exclusion from various things, cinemas, benches on certain parks. They had to sit in only certain carriages on the metro, for example. Following that, there were roundups. People were sent to a holding camp in Trancy, in the north of the city, from where many were deported. Since about the 1990s, there's been a real movement to try and find out more about this and to accept that terrible things were done to the Jews in France, and not just in Germany. And it's now known that some 76,000 French Jews were deported, about 11,000 of those were children, and after the war, only some 4,000 could still be accounted for so almost all of them met their deaths. It's so hard to take in the statistics and the facts even from such a distance, and one way for it to become very clear what happened would be to read a book called Journal, so journal or diary, written at the time by a young Jewish girl called Hélène Baer. She kept her diary from April 1942 until March 1944. She was a student at the Sorbonne, studying English literature, loved to play the violin in her free time, and the book opens really with a relatively normal life, her enjoying friends and studying, meeting the boy that she's going to fall in love with, but gradually there are references to the way Jews were treated in Paris at this period. Her own father was arrested and taken to the Drancy camp, although in fact later released, and in the end she herself was rounded up and deported and died in 1945, just a few days before the liberation of the Bergen-Belsen camp. Very early on, on the 1st of June 1942, she writes, quote, Maman came to tell me the news about the Yellow Star, and I pushed her away, saying, I'll talk about that later. She deliberates about whether to wear it or not, decides in the end that perhaps she will, but writes, Where will it lead? And reading what she wrote gives you an idea of the humiliation that this represented. In the street, two boys pointed at us and said, Hey, seen that? A Jew. She's aware of other people pointing at her, but says too that some people make a point of smiling at her, which brought tears to her eyes. There's a moment when an elderly man comes up to her in the street. He offered me his hand and said loudly, A French Catholic shakes your hand, and when it's over, we'll let him have it. Of course, once she was wearing the star, other things followed. Quote, I did not want to wear the star, but I ended up doing so. At École Militaire Metro Station, when I got off, a lady said to me, Good day, miss. The ticket inspector said, Last carriage. So yesterday's rumour was right. It was like a bad dream coming true. She becomes aware of much more terrible things happening. Roundups. People start to disappear. She writes about a woman whose sister had four children who were taken away. She'd gone into hiding but she'd come back down to see the concierge in her flat just at the moment when the policeman came to get her. When describing all of this, she writes, I'm noting the facts in haste so as not to forget them, because we must not forget. She goes on to write about a whole family, father, mother and five children, who gassed themselves to escape the round-up, of another woman who threw herself out of a window, of policemen who were shot for warning people that they were going to be rounded up, so that they could escape. 
And, heartbreakingly, in the middle of all of this, you get little moments of pleasure described, as, for example, one morning when she went with her boyfriend out to their country house to pick some fruit and wrote, quote, When I look back on it, it seems like an enchantment. The dew-soaked grass, the blue sky, the dewdrops sparkling in the sunlight, and the joy flooding over me. This morning, I was completely happy. Not long after that, she writes about the two of them being out for a walk, and how, in a little garden behind Notre Dame, which seemed very peaceful while they sat there, suddenly they were shooed away by a park attendant who'd seen her star. More neighbours disappear, more dreadful stories. One of thirteen children arrested at an orphanage, the oldest thirteen, the youngest five. Their parents had already been deported or disappeared, but the authorities came to collect the children, saying, quote, they needed some more to make up the next day's trainload of a thousand Jews. Sorry about this, lady. I'm just doing my duty. And hanging over her and her family, all the time, this fear of being, as she called it, hunted, thinking what would they do if it happened? Quote, if they ring the bell, what do we do? If we don't open the door, they'll knock it down. Open up and show our ID. The chances are a hundred to one against getting away with it. Make a run for it. What if they're at the servant's entrance? Open the door, the warrant, dress in a hurry, no rucksack allowed. What should we take? Consciousness of the looming catastrophe, of total change, no time to think. All we're leaving behind, the car waiting for us in the street, the camp, meeting all the others, unrecognisable. Will it be, or will it not? Occasionally, someone taken to Drancy was released again, and from these people, they got information about what might happen, about the convoys that were taking people in their hundreds, even thousands, every week, to the concentration camps. Here's what her colleague, Madame Kahn, told her, after she had been interned in Drancy for a week. Quote, I asked for precise details. A day or two before the convoy is scheduled, they sort them into rooms which correspond to a wagon load. Sixty people, men and women together. For sixty people, they put sixteen straw beds on the floor of a sealed cattle wagon. One slot pail. When are they emptied? For food, each deportee gets a parcel before departure, containing four large boiled potatoes, half a kilo of boiled beef, 250 grams of margarine, a few dry biscuits, a piece of gruyere, a loaf and a quarter. Rations for a six-day journey. In February 1944, so just two months before she herself was sent for, she describes making up a parcel to send to friends who are already at the Transy camp. Some clothes, a little sewing kit. And she tells how she's heard that a train load of 1,500 people had left just that week. Maybe, she writes, they were on that train. And in that same week she writes about how utterly unfathomable it all is. Why, she writes, do German soldiers I pass in the street not slap me or insult me. Why do they quite often hold the metro door open for me and say, excuse me, miss, when they pass in front? Why? Because those people do not know, or rather, they have stopped thinking. They just want to obey orders. So they do not see even the incomprehensible illogicality of opening a door for me one day and perhaps deporting me the next day. Yet I would still be the same person. I really do recommend that you read Hélène Baer's diary. I found a quote on the book jacket from Simone Weil, herself a Parisian Jew who was deported during the occupation, 
one of the very few who survived and whom you may have heard of because she went on to become a minister in the French government. Of the journal, she wrote, At once the diary of a young Jewish girl under the German occupation of Paris, a work of exceptional literary quality and a powerful historical document. Again, if you look carefully, you'll see plaques all over the city in memory of the Jews who lived in particular buildings. Particularly on the schools, you'll often see a plaque with an inscription which states the number of Jewish children who'd attended that school and disappeared, giving their ages and sometimes their names. The city of Paris has set up the Memorial de la Shoah, Shoah being the Hebrew word for catastrophe and the word that is used to refer to the Holocaust. It's actually got two sites, one in central Paris and one to the north of the city, on the metro line actually between Gare du Nord and the Paris Charles de Gaulle airport. That's Drancy itself, built as social housing, turned then into a holding centre for Jews rounded up in Paris, and from which many of them were deported. It is run today as a memorial with documentation, facts, exhibitions, talks for school children, everything they can possibly do to make sure that we don't forget. I'm going to focus, however, on their other centre, which is in central Paris, in the 4th district of the Marais, and is called Le Memorial de la Shoah. Opened on the 27th of January, that's Holocaust Memorial Day, of course, in 2005, it has a number of sections which, combined, leave you absolutely clear what happened and why it's so important that it shouldn't be forgotten. There's a memorial courtyard with a huge cylinder in it, symbolising the chimneys of the death camps, and on the facade of that courtyard, two quotes, one of which from the French minister, Justin Godard, reads like this. Before the unknown Jewish martyr, incline your head in piety and respect for all martyrs. Incline your thoughts to accompany them along their path of sorrow. They will lead you to the highest pinnacle of justice and truth. So that underlines a third aspect of the centre's work, the idea that remembering what happened to Parisian Jews has a role to play when considering things happening in our world today. After the memorial courtyard comes the Wall of Names, on which they have engraved the name of 76,000 Jews who were deported from France. Down a level, there's the crypt, which is described as a symbolic tomb of the six million Jews who died without a sepulture. Then you can go through the exhibition, which is full of photographs and memorabilia and film clips outlining the facts, and which finishes in a room known as the Children's Memorial, which has, on all four sides, from floor to ceiling, just photograph after photograph of Jewish children who were deported. Some 3,000 photographs in all, and work continues to add to the number and find photographs of the others. When you go outside, you'll find a wall running down the side of the building, labelled Wall of the Righteous, on which they've engraved the names of about 4,000 people, mainly French citizens, who were known to have actively helped Jews during the time of the Holocaust in France, perhaps by sheltering them in their homes, perhaps by providing food, perhaps by organising safe passage from place to place through the country until they reached the border and could escape. Between them then, these two museums, the Musée de la Libération and the Memorial de la Shoah, provide a picture of Paris during Les Années Noires. 
a focus for visitors, but also for Parisians themselves. We know that every year, on certain dates, if you see one of the plaques on the wall of a Parisian building to somebody Jewish who lost their life during the Holocaust, there will be a little bouquet of flowers brought there for the anniversary of their death. A sign that Parisians too think it's very important to remember. So that's the end of this rather dark episode. Next week I'm proposing to tour Montparnasse with an emphasis particularly on it being the Paris of authors like Hemingway and Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. So a little bit on them and the lives they led in this rather literary area of Paris, something about the cafes in which they worked, and a focus too on that wonderful institution, Shakespeare and Company, the English language bookshop, which has been a focus for so many British and American authors coming to Paris, and of course, for so many other people, the readers who loved their work. So I hope you'll join me for that. And in the meanwhile, I'd just like to thank you very much for listening. Un grand merci and bid you goodbye. Au revoir.